All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Classroom Critics, a uh, film studies podcast by educators who have this secret fantasy about being filmmakers. That's what I keep saying. <laughs> Another life, maybe. But uh, I'm here with, uh, with Walter Freeman uh, and Andrew Martino. And we're coming at you this time with a uh, probably one of the more different experimental films that we've ever covered in this podcast. It's called The Other Side of the Wind. Uh, it's 2018, although it's been in the making. It was in the making for several decades, dating all the way back to 1970, throughout the early 70s. Mm -hmm. Of course, directed by Orson Welles, starring John Huston, Peter Bogdanovich, Susan Strasberg, Oya Kodar, and an endless list of, um, of celebrities and uh, film students and whoever Welles could get into his frame. And um, this was released, of course, on Netflix. It was a Netflix exclusive uh, after many years. And we'll be talking about this. I mean, introducing this film could be an entire podcast in and of itself. But uh, to be somewhat concise, it was the, 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 the film was basically in the can, in the vaults uh, for many, many years. Um, there were legal problems, political problems, financial problems in getting this film uh, finally produced and, and released. And it took um, the omniscient powers uh, of Netflix to get this film finally, you know, out of the vault and funded and edited, scored. And uh, finally, it was um, in 2018, November 2018, it was, it was released on, uh, on Netflix after, um, I believe, a brief screening. I'm not sure if the, if the streaming uh, availability was first or if it was actually in the theater first. Uh, do you guys remember... If, I think it. I think it hit a, a few theaters first. Yeah. Uh, very limited, uh, uh, very in a very limited sense. But and then it went wide stream through Netflix. Right. I think they did the same thing with the Irishman and yeah. Ballad of Buster Scruggs because then I think it makes it eligible for the Academy. That's right. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, this had probably an even an even more limited screening. I think um, so. If I'm not mistaken. But, uh, you know, to say that this film's history was troubled, was, uh, it's, it's probably an understatement. It, it, you know, I've heard people say, you know, before it was released, that it probably will never be released, that it would always be um, tied up in this legal, legal trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, before we get into uh, the nuts and bolts of things and, and into our analysis, uh, this is funny. This is take two, actually, right? Uh, Andrew, yeah. this is uh, the second time we've actually tried to uh, record this podcast. That's right. Andrew, what happened? I, I, I definitely will take some responsibility in that. Um, <laughs> I'm I, I think it's a tribute to Orson Welles that it's taking us so long to get this podcast out. Yeah. <laughs> After many attempts, uh, you know, the, the story about, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, the story about the other side of the wind is at least as interesting as, as the film itself, uh, if not more so. And the, the story behind this particular podcast that we're recording right now is also interesting. Uh, just to give everyone some context, uh, I'm dean of the Honors College in Salisbury University at uh, in Salisbury, um, uh, Maryland. So when I found out that Netflix was going to stream this, I asked some of my colleagues in the film department um, if they would um, think about getting together for an honors college sponsored event um, to uh, show the film publicly uh, and then have a panel discussion afterwards. 
Um, so we uh, had been doing this podcast for a couple of years now, uh, and then I, um, you know, left the band. I, I, I moved uh, for another job um, from New Hampshire to Maryland, and so I, I wanted to do a podcast about this. This is really how Bill and I met at a party talking about our mutual uh, admiration, um, and I think that's probably too uh, We did the room that day, I think. Yeah, we did, uh, <laughs> of Orson Welles. So I, I wanted to make sure that, that Bill and Walt came down for this. So they actually traveled to, to Maryland to see the film. Um, we saw it on the big screen in one of the screening rooms uh, on Salisbury University's campus. Um, so we watched the film. Uh, it, we had a fair number of people from the community and a lot of students there. And we had a couple of other professors from the English and film uh, department uh, for the for the um, uh, panel discussion, and it was really shocking how how that panel uh, really played out. Uh, that it wasn't a love fest. Uh, we've waited so long for this film um, that I think all of the panelists, there were four of us, and I was one of them, um, really didn't care for the film, and and we were now looking back, very critical of the film. And uh, we got mixed results, if I remember correctly, from the audience. And then... Uh, it got a little heated at one point, didn't it? It, it did get a little heated, yeah. Um, there, there was a lot of discussion about uh, the nudity and about the treatment of women and, and the toxic masculinity, um, which is a term that I don't think existed in 1970. Um, so we talked a little bit about that. And then the interesting things happened afterward, where we uh, we went to dinner, as I remember, and then we all sort of went our separate ways. You guys went back to the hotel, and then we met uh, in the Honors House the next morning to record the podcast. And we recorded uh, at least an hour of it, and we all three of us thought it was one of our best. Uh, and come to find out, um, it didn't record that somehow uh, the recording didn't take. Um, I, I swear to you, um, I hit record. Uh, it's usually my, my laptop that is, um, that's, that's recording all this. And uh, it was there, the file was there. Yeah. It just, uh, for some reason there was, there's someone out there who's technical, probably knows exactly what happened, but it, it, was, it was sabotaged by Wells's ghost or something. I don't yeah. know. If somebody out there knows how to fix that and, and to retrieve something, we'd, I, I'd love to hear it again. The last um, episode. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to do it in, in real time while it was fresh in our minds yeah. and seeing this film after we've um, heard so much about and so many rumors flying and the buildup to the film was, was immense um, and the expectations, to be honest, were immense as well. Um, and and so, we had hoped to be on the cutting edge. I mean, here, here it is, debuting on Netflix, you know, we're attending right. a panel, we're, we're, we're hot off the press doing a, a podcast and, uh, you know, and it wasn't anybody's fault. It was, uh, no, the, right. the, the software has a reputation for, yeah. for dropping recordings, but, uh, yeah. Dang, that was a hard one to lose, wasn't it? That was a hard one to lose, well, especially because I felt really bad because you guys had traveled all the way and it's, you know, it's a 10 hour drive. Uh, it's not an easy drive, so uh, yeah. it was still worth it. We had fun. The screening itself was fun. It was uh, yeah. that alone oh, yeah. was worth the trip. But uh, this podcast will be will be even better, right? Yes, uh, yes, it will. So point. you know, it was it was one of those moments where you think that you're doing something really, really neat and and cutting edge, and and I think we did. I think we had a great podcast, and it, you know, it's one of those things. It's the uh, it's the lost guitar solo, right? That for, <laughs> For whatever reason wasn't recorded so we are back about a year and a half later uh the three of us had just recently rewatched the film again so we're actually seeing it with it with a with the distance of a year 
uh, and seeing it for the second time. And of course, if you're going to comment on films like books or anything else, you should probably see it more than once. And, I, and, and yeah, I, I'm going to concur with that. I mean, I remember coming out of that, seeing it and having a very distinct opinion about it. And yeah. the, the time since, and then the reviewings and our, our private discussions, I'm really wrestling with how I feel about this film. Um, but um, so, maybe time has given us some perspective. I don't know. Right. So you guys did, did not see a frame of it again since um, until last night, right? But um, for me, I, I saw it on the premiere and it had, you know, it's been, an, as you said, a year and a half. Uh, and last night was the first time I saw it since. Is that the same for you, you too? Yeah, I started rewatching it uh, this week and then reading about it a lot. Mm. Um, and it's funny what you remember versus what, you know, comes back when you see it. I, I, I concur with Andrew. You have to see this film more than once. I don't think this, I think the first time you see it, in my opinion, you're just kind of flabbergasted. Mm. It, it takes a lot to get used to watching this film, I thought. Mm. Um, and and I, I didn't care for the experience, to be honest with you, the first time I saw it. Um, I, I think... Walt and I, we both didn't care for it, and, and I think Bill, you were the you were the person that that did uh, that you did like it um, quite a lot, if I remember correctly. And this was the first time, if I remember, that the three of us really didn't agree on on a particular film. That we we came out with different experiences for, from this. Yeah, yeah, you know, we. Um, I thought that was interesting. You know, it was interesting that we were in the same room, watching in, at, the, at the very same time the same film. Yeah. Uh, but came away with it with uh, very different reactions. Um, I almost felt, as I was watching it in that screening, I almost felt the hostility in the room while we were watching it. Uh, I don't know if it was imagined or not, but I, I, I knew when the film ended that it was going to uh, be ripped apart by the majority of the people in that, in that screening room. And, uh, you know, I think it made for a very interesting evening you know it's it's we don't have to praise uh, a work of art just because it's by orson wells or whoever and uh, i just i found it very interesting you know that alone made it interesting because it was such a different it, it is such a different movie it's so i mean maybe we can start there it's it's an experiment this film it, by its very nature is is an experiment um it's experimental for now it was experimental for then Wells knew that he wasn't making a, um, a traditionally narrative film. And uh, he was an experiment, experimenter. Wells, by nature, was someone who believed that there are too many, and I'm paraphrasing something he said in an interview once, he said that there are too many specialists in the world, that there are not enough experimenters, people who are willing to try different things. And Wells was uh, your, old, your, your, your classic Renaissance man. He, he drew, he, um, he practiced uh, all sorts of mediums from theater to film to radio, mm -hmm. politics. He just dabbled, right. dabbled in everything. And so this, in, in large part, was an experiment. And I think it was a, uh, you kind of like an interesting extension of a few things that was going on in, in the trajectory of his, of his career. So I think that might have thrown a lot of people for a loop. Not, not the two of you, I, I'm, you both yeah. you probably knew enough about the film that you knew you were going to walk into a very experimental yep. um, kind of uh, kind of film here. But I think you had some, there were some students there, right? Andrew, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. And, and so they, you know, I'm not sure how much you briefed them on the film, but um, who knows what they expected? You know, they, they were invited to a film and perhaps they were expecting a, 
a typical narrative and that that, that they did not get that. <laughs> I, well, I was wondering, oh, go ahead, Andrew, I'm sorry. I, I didn't brief them on, just to, really quickly, I didn't brief them on anything because I didn't really know anything. We, I had seen like, like both of you, a few clips here and there that had been released over the years, but I didn't really know how it would have been put together by the uh, outside editors uh, in the later years. So I was really, really interested to see what the finished quote unquote product would look like. So I told my students that I know we're coming and I think in my introduction that evening before the film started, I said, I, I, I can't preface this in any way because I don't have any idea of, of what you're about to see. Um, I knew there was uh, some nudity in it. So I, I said, you know, th there is uh, nudity in this, which is strange for an Orson Welles film. Uh, but other than that, I had no idea what to expect. Especially when a lot of the nudity was, <laughs> you know, was provided by his mistress. Right. Leo Kodar. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I, I, was, I was struck, and I don't know, you know, if you could consider that screening room as a microcosm, but um, people that didn't like the film seemed to make the folks that liked it angry, and there seemed to be this sort of accusation that if you didn't like it, maybe you didn't get it. And yeah. that, that bothered me, because I, I, I get the film. I get what he was trying to do. And I don't want to say I hate the film or dislike the film. Like I said, I'm wrestling with it, but I mean, I get it. I, I get a lot of things that I don't necessarily care for, like like the novel 1984. Brilliant novel, brilliant premise. I'm glad I read it, but I hated reading it. And, you know, so again, it's not a matter of understanding it. And I think, uh, you know, I want to make that clear at the outset if I criticize the film, not that, I, not that it was over my head. Do you think that this film is so such a departure for Wells that we came in expecting something that we, we weren't, there was no, he didn't deliver on the expectations. Not that he promised us anything, because he certainly didn't, but we didn't, there was no return on that. Uh, I don't know if people were expecting Citizen Kane Part 2, and as we spoke a year and a half ago, it's much closer to F for Fake although a lot less polished, in my opinion, than F for Fake. But mm -hmm. it's certainly light years away from, and by that I mean different, from Citizen Kane or The Magnificent Ambersons uh, or any of those films. It well, seemed undisciplined, but I don't know if that was by design. I mean, I know parts of it. I know he was trying to make a statement. Uh, um, and, and I read an interesting article today about it in The New Yorker where they said that the, the, he was trapped in his own genius because he was trying to make a statement about the the sort of new style of filmmaking. And so when he attempted to satirize it, he ended up making it good. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, I mean, it's hard to say. I, uh, I'm just struck by how an artist can maintain a vision for that long in terms of, um, not, not for that long, but in terms of like, you have to gather these Hollywood greats every couple of months or weeks or whatever over the course of five years. I don't know how you maintain a vision because the logistics of filmmaking are such that you know the, the it ebbs and flows and it changes and you know i'm sure his vision changed as he went over the course of five years and and then he passed away before he could finish it so who knows what it could have been um, um and that's what that's one of my questions um do you consider this i mean this is an odd question but is this an orson welles film because did it come out as he wanted it to um you know he left notes but you know as well as I do in the editing process and 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 in all that you might change, yeah. um, and so is this is this an Orson Welles film? Do you think? Would you say? Well, he did leave a lot of detailed notes. So his you know his wishes. I mean, I, I have not seen any of the notes myself, of course. But uh, from what I understand, a lot of the edits, a lot of the notes are were made pretty clear. 
And uh, he did give Peter Bogdanovich, um, you know, he, he, he told him, you know, uh, it was, you know, from what I understand, it was pretty much out of the blue. He turned to Peter Bogdanovich one, one day and said, look, if, I, if something happens to me, please finish this movie. So um, he entrusted uh, Bogdanovich with that task. Um, and my thinking is that he probably left some pretty detailed notes. Well, um, and not to override you, Bill, uh, I'm going to see if I can send you guys this article I read because it, it goes pretty deep into the inside of the editing. Um, and um, his what he left was a mess. Film canisters with vague labels that they had to figure out, sound that was incomplete. And the discussion that the article talks about, about the editing choices they made, really shows you that despite the notes he left and all, there was a lot of like personal decision-making on the part of all the people that had a, a hand in it, even uh, Graver, the sound guy. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, not sound guy, cinematographer. Yeah. Also, I mean, film's a collaboration, right? Uh, it's It takes many different artists to make a, a final product. And, you know, even with the auteur theory, you know, it takes um, – so many great technicians act it just you know so many people who are part of this this collaboration and i think this film part of its experimental nature is that it relied even more heavily on collaboration i believe i mean wells didn't even have a, a script with this film right so he relied um so much on on the acting on on everything the the, the, the mood of the room what he felt that day um the camera work of other people. And then when it came down to it, uh, he relied on the collaboration of people who, you know, decades later were still alive when he, you know, and, and so I think that collaboration, that collaboration uh, piece of it makes the film even more unique. So whether it's an Orson Welles film or not, um, I don't know if that matters too much. It's, it's probably less of an Orson Welles film than Citizen Kane. Um, but even Kane had a, uh, you know, that took many great artists to make it what it is. So, yeah. um, so I think you could you could almost argue that this is this is a Gary Graver film because he was so instrumental in making this film in the way that Greg Tolan was for Citizen Kane. But I, I think probably even closer uh, to Wells in in Other Side of the Wind. Uh, with Gary Graver than than Greg Tolan was for Citizen Kane. Uh, it really is a testament to Gary Graver's uh, resilience, I suppose, that he stuck with Wells this long and and filmed uh, some impossible shots that Wells asked him to do. But I want to I want to piggyback on what you said, Bill. I I think I keep coming back to what Wells constantly said throughout his career, and that films are made in the editing room. Wells is notorious for shooting a lot of footage and then whittling it down and whittling it down more and more in the editing room. So I think that this might have been a film he just really could never finish, that he was constantly doing it, always hoping to finish. And with the idea in mind, I don't, I don't buy any of that, uh, those arguments of self-sabotage, uh, that he really wasn't interesting, interested in, in finishing his films. Um, I, I just don't subscribe to that point of view. I just think he was such a perfectionist in the editing room, precisely, that he kept finding new ways to put, put this footage together. So, and this goes back to what you said earlier about his mood on a certain day, that he would have visions of what the film should look like, um, and, and that may change over time uh, because yeah. of the stalling of the funding. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I agree. I think he didn't want to finish the film. I think he wanted to finish it very badly. But yeah. it's strange with Wells, even though he never consciously self-sabotaged, it's almost like there was something within him that made that happen. 
Yeah. Despite his good <laughs> intentions. Uh, I don't know if you remember seeing the, the, the speech that he made during the, um, I, I might've been the, I'm drawing a blank as to what organization um, gave him a lifetime achievement. AFI. AFI, AFI was yeah. it. And he gets up there, he makes this incredible eloquent speech, a speech only Wells could give. And, uh, you know, in an attempt to sort of, you know, sing for a supper, he brings a clip of, of the film right. and he shows it. And it's, you know, oh, by the way, this, this film that I want money for rips apart everybody in this room. <laughs> it's critical of 95% of the individuals in this movie. It, it, it's, um, it's satirical. It's, it's, uh, it's a vicious attack on the industry that I, <laughs> that I am working around. Can I have money, please? You know, so it's, yeah. it's, it's very strange how, how, he, how he worked. He was a man always in search of end money. I think if I ever write a book on Wells, I'm going to call it End Money because he seemed to always get that part where he couldn't finish the film uh, because he had run out of funds to do it. And this is, this is really the, the, the dilemma of the independent filmmaker, that, that filmmaker working without the backing of those big studios. Uh, Wells was somebody, as, as, as you both know, who, who, would, who wouldn't be told what to do. He, he would go his own way. And, and he said during that AFI speech, you know, these films certainly could have been better, but they wouldn't have been mine. Uh, you know, so th th there's there's a lot of integrity, I think, in that statement. And I think he backed it up with those films he made. And a lot of them couldn't get finished because he just ran out of money and, and they didn't reach that point of perfection where he was satisfied. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking about that all the time. And now seeing the film again, um, I've watched little snippets of it here and there over the past year, uh, you know, a scene here, a scene there. But I haven't watched it from start to finish until uh, yesterday. Uh, I do have a more, I have a better appreciation of it now, although I still dislike it. Um, and I think I dislike it because I just don't understand it. Uh, to me, it's just at odds with, with what I'm used to. It's, it, it almost looks like, it looks like bad David Lynch to me, uh, like somebody trying to, to do something um, European that just doesn't quite, doesn't quite work. But now, yeah. go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I just, I, I'm wondering if that's not, that's not it. I mean, so much of Wells's career was him pioneering right. filmmaking, and here he is aping a genre and a style that isn't his. And, and he did it well, but still not his. So this is, yeah. um, to me, the first time he's not making his own or not not breaking his own path. Mm -hmm. I came to a realization this afternoon because uh, just to give our, our listeners a little context, we've been talking about this all day uh, through you know, the texting each other. And um, I, I watched this afternoon the documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, yeah. um, which I find to be extraordinarily good. And at the end of that, and I didn't catch this the first time, this is the second time I've seen the documentary. At the end, he starts talking about, he's, again, he's talking about Other Side of the Wind before he starts filming it. This is before 1970 and how he wants to film it. And he says something really interesting about how maybe this will be, end up being a film about the film, uh, a film about filmmaking itself. So I think what happened that night when we first saw it a year and a half ago, we were too wrapped up in the, in the narrative itself. And we weren't, we weren't necessarily paying attention to, um, you know, this is Wells satirizing filmmaking from the big Hollywood studio perspective and, and really calling into question Hollywood that was very popular at the time, that, that new Hollywood. 
uh, before we got to Star Wars and Jaws and, and the blockbusters to, you know, that, that era that we're in now. I found that really, to me, enlightening when, when I saw him. And he said it, if you see the cliff, it's right at the end of that documentary. He says it almost off the cuff that he, he was thinking about um, really doing something very meta with this. And, and that kind of opened my eyes a little bit this afternoon to go back and rewatch the film yet again, thinking maybe he's trying to do something about filmmaking itself. What does it mean to make a movie? And it is a circus, regardless of the studio's involvement or not. And you know, the meta quality is interesting. It's almost like the film part, at least a lot of the film, is almost what you would get if you took a, a director's psyche and put it on yeah. the stereotypical uh, couch. And, and let him speak to a, to an analyst. I mean, and not all of it. I think there's some elements in there that were, you know, strictly there for the story, but sure. uh, a lot of it is just such a reflection of you know, him, his struggles against the studios, his resentment of avant-garde cinema. So much was, was him airing, you know, his thoughts. I mean, pretty blatantly. Is it, would you say it's autobiographical? He said it wasn't, but I think it is. I, it's got to be right. I, I think you know there there are parts of Wells in in it for sure. I think there there are certainly parts of John Huston in it. Uh, there there are parts of John Ford in it. There are parts of all of those directors that became uh, you know a, a victim to their own ego one way or another. And, and certainly Houston and Wells were were some of the biggest egos at the time. You know, and 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 then the the whole character of Jake Hannaford is really based on Hemingway. You see that uh, oh. easily, I think. And, oh, yeah. and this whole larger than life male persona. Um, I, and I said this at the night of the screening as well, I don't think we should take this as, as Wells, you know, promoting that kind of uh, machismo. He's really, I think, this is a critical look at that. I don't think John Huston's character comes off well at all, Jake Hannaford, although um, just as, as, a, as a footnote, I think Huston is magnificent in this film, uh, but his character is not likable and I don't think he's meant to be likable. Yeah, Wells has said in interviews that he has kind of a, a love-hate relationship with yeah. men like Hemingway and even Houston, you know, uh, yeah. who had that, you know, extreme machismo, um, but also were, were great artists. You know, he, you know, Wells um, had kind of a um, d disdain for over-the-top machismo. And so, yeah, that was definitely parodied here. Yeah. I always find it interesting, too, you know, Wells could have had a career kind of like Houston in a way. I mean, Houston was a visionary director in his own right, but he found, he found the ability to work within the system yeah. to make his art. And he was commercially successful. His projects were, you know, were greenlit. He, he got the money, he got the stars. Um, I'm sure he butt heads with many a producer along the way. Uh, but, but Wells felt that he could not do that. He felt that he could not compromise in any way at all. And we were talking about this earlier, that um, there are certain artists who are just incapable of, uh, maybe they're capable, but they just, for some reason, there's something within them that makes them uh, sort of alienate themselves from uh, whoever the money men, the people who, who, who are the gatekeepers and they're constantly living um, hand to mouth. And, you know, Wells died um, unable to fund his, his final projects. You know, his, his, his final years were just, unfortunately, uh, just one disappointment after the next. 
because uh, it was just sort of the fruit of, of, of many years of not being able to, um, again, work within that system. And I think it's part of the genius on, on the one hand. I mean, mostly all of his films were, were mutilated in some way. Yeah. And um, mostly because he was sort of unwilling to, uh, to, ca- to, to kowtow to, uh, to those he felt had no idea. And, and I think like John Huston, Wells is a person who lived well beyond his means too, uh, you know, extravagantly to the point of, of going broke a lot of the times because of it. I think that and he had poor judgment, to be honest, with trying to find investors. The Iranians, you know, that was a poor investment uh, and it came back to bite him in the end. Um, all the way through the courts with, with um, you know, the French court giving the, the film rights to the producer rather than the artist. Um, yeah. and, and not going with the Napoleonic code that way. Um, that must have been a terrific blow to Wells, I'm thinking, at that point. Um, yeah. And then, you know, when funding fell apart for King Lear just before he died, you know, this, this, this sort of trail follows him, uh, not being able to get funding. Oh, there's so many unfinished projects. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's really heartbreaking. So you, you see that parallel in the film with Jake Hannaford, you know, um, he, he doesn't even go to his own screening. They're showing the... right to the Robert Evans character at the beginning and he's not even there. And, and, you know, Wells is, you know, I think Andrew, you mentioned the metacognitive nature of the film, you know, he, this is what's happening to him and yet he doesn't compromise. And you're right. Jake Hannaford does not come off. Well, uh, he's vicious. I mean, he, he uh, destroys that English teacher in that one scene. He berates his actor in the scene he's directing him in to the point yeah. that he quits the film. And I think that part of Wells is putting himself up there and saying, you know, I peace in this, you know, yeah, they didn't treat me well. My films were mangled. I couldn't get funding, but I also didn't compromise who I was Yeah, to do it. Yeah. By all accounts, Wells did not suffer fools at all. Right. uh, You see that within the film. And uh, you also see the, you know, the the autobiographical nature of the relationship between uh, Bogdanovich's character. Yep. And the Bogdanovich in, in real life. And, uh, you know, somewhere along the way, they had a falling out. And um, I don't know the true nature of it. I'm not sure if the true nature of it is, is fully known in detail. But uh, Bogdanovich had a chance to, from what I understand, help, um, help out Wells with some of his projects. And, um, you know, who knows what really happened. Um, for whatever reason, I don't know if you know any more about this, Andrew, uh, Wells felt uh, a little bit slighted at some at some point. Uh, I think there's there, there's certainly a jealousy issue there on Wells's part. You know, Peter Bogdanovich is this, and it's it's a theme that runs all throughout Wells's career that he's really borrowing from Shakespeare, right? It's it's that the younger person who eclipses the older mentor, right? The mentee eclipsing the mentor, and Peter Bogdanovich, you know, with the Last Picture Show, all of a sudden becomes this superstar director that everybody wants to work with. And he's got money for films and his films are making money. And I think Wells was very jealous of that. And that's not a criticism of Wells. It's a, it's a human characteristic, but that certainly had to have bothered Wells a great deal. And I know that Bogdanovich has, has claimed that, you know, the, the falling out was really because Wells would go on TV and, 
and 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 just talk smack about him, uh, you know, in, in a very hurtful and mean way. Uh, Burt Reynolds and 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 Wells would talk about him on on Wells' show, and you know, Joseph Mc, uh, McBride talks about it in his book, Whatever Happened to Orson Wells. Um, some of the things that he did to Peter Bogdanovich, and this there was a mean streak with Orson Wells. Um, this is also played out in the Callow uh, books as well uh, about Wells. So, but then it gets back to your earlier point, Bill, about artists, right? You have to be, I think, at least a little egocentric to be an artist, especially at that caliber. Uh, you're feeding constantly off your own life and the lives of others. That it it's it burns you up, I think, after a time. Yeah, yeah. And Wells, throughout his career, seems to be obsessed with the theme of of loss. Yeah. And uh, often it's the loss of innocence. Um, and uh, I remember hearing the, uh, you remember this, this, this interview, it's on YouTube right now. It's a three and a half plus uh, interview with, uh, with Bogdanovich um, in the late 60s, early 70s, where you actually hear the um, sort of the genesis of this, of this film idea in real time. And Wells actually coming to the, the interview and they're interviewing, it seems on a home recorder, just the audio. And uh, you hear Wells talking about this idea that he came up with that we resulted from Bogdanovich kind of talking about how, um, I forget who he was talking about specifically, but the idea that uh, there's, there's a certain ageism when it yeah. comes to uh, Hollywood and in many areas where it seems like there's this idea that at some point you lose it. Yeah. At some point you lose whatever that is. Uh, you know, and, and Wells took issue with that. He, you know, and he gave, gave some examples of how um, in certain mediums you have examples of uh, older people uh, who actually are able to produce, who, who could produce, if given the chance, their best work yet. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I don't remember if you heard this, but I, I caught wind of this. This uh, I looked at it briefly. But it, Quentin Tarantino has stated recently that he wants to retire before yeah. he gets old. I'm not sure how serious that is, but uh, he seems to believe that it's a young man's game, um, which I think we have many examples of that not being true in in, the ter in terms of directing, directing, film directing. You can make the argument that the best rock and roll is made by people in their 20s. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I'll. I'll Except that, but uh, film history is filled with people in their in the in their elder years creating some great work. Yeah, and, I, uh, think, I think about the work that that Samuel Beckett did in his eighties, and 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 you know Sophocles wrote Oedipus at Colonus at ninety years old, I think. So there is there is that sense that you, you, you write differently, and the stories you tell might be different, but it you know. It's certainly able to be an artist that that far into life, but I think you're absolutely right. Hollywood is seen as a young man's or a young woman's town, um, and and there's there's certainly something to that. Well, there's All a right. hyper hyperkinetic quality to everything now, which you know I think Wells tried to capture in the film. But we see a movie. You know, we talked last week. Our movie was The Irishman, and you know we see Martin Scorsese having trouble getting funding, but then right. he produces a film that is very different. He, it's not a young man's film. It's an, it's a right. meditation. It's elegiac. And um, I think that an artist has to evolve. I mean, you have to embrace, um, you have to embrace your experience, your wisdom, your, your, your differing viewpoint of the world that you had when you were 20. And I think those, that's the mark of a true great artist is you can endure. 
um, you know, your art evolves. Yeah. Um, but this film, um, to me, was unpleasant to watch. What, what's that? I said, however, this film. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I just, we, we, we differ on it. We, and as I said, I, I said we have mixed emotions. Bill, you really liked it. Andrew, you're sort of mixed on it too. But to me, this film's hard to watch. Uh, I, I just can't, I felt like I couldn't anchor onto anything because the quick cuts and the non sequiturs and the pretentious lines, you, you had to really dig through them to get to the through line, the story, the A story and the B story. But I just, I got impatient partway through and anxious and, you know, maybe that's what he wanted, but mm -hmm. um, I found it a hard film to watch. Did you find that the narrative, maybe the, even the entertainment value of the film as the film progressed, maybe around the hour, hour and 15 minute mark, things started to slow down a bit. Um, the, the, the editing, slowed down the it, it was more you know longer takes yeah um there seemed to be actual scenes scene. that's one thing there's, there's really very few actual scenes what you know what you would call a typical scene right in right. the traditional sense with little arcs within a film but it seems like as the film progressed again this is just going off a second viewing that the film started to really use the word anchor well for me it started to anchor more in the latter half that you started to see okay this is what it's amounting to. Um, and, and everything sort of slowed down a bit. If, it, if you're gonna kind of equate it to music, the beginning of the film was very much um, just, I don't know, bebop jazz or whatever. It was just extremely almost um, improvisational. But I, I find that maybe the, one of the latter movements, the, the pacing was, was a little bit more, for me, satisfying. Yeah. And I think you got to see the character a little bit more vividly. That's just with me. Um, let, you want, I mean, let's, let's go back to talking about the, um, you know, the, the narrative itself. I mean, did you see any plan? Did it just seem like um, a hodgepodge? Or was, do you think that if maybe we started analyzing this more closely, watching it um, four or five more times, we'd start to see okay, Wells really did know what he was doing here or the, you know, the folks who edited it in the final years. Or was it just, you know what, um, this is going to, this is a collage. This is, this is a, um, this is sort of a poem or, or whatever. This is, this is improvisation. Did you see anything that's, that could be considered a structure? Yeah, when, when you, um, this is going to be metaphorical, but when you hear someone speaking in a foreign language, you feel they're talking incredibly fast. Mm -hmm. When you learn the language, you hear the separations in the words and you realize that they're talking at a normal speed. When I watched this film the first time, to me it was a collage, as you said. The, the, the second time I watched it, the story emerged a little bit better. And I liked it better the second time I watched it. Uh, but it, I still felt there was so much in it that was unnecessary, pretentious for the sake of being pretentious. Um, and so I almost wish that he had stuck with his abstraction in the film within a film, but maybe gone a little more traditional narrative in, in the, the story of Jack Hannaford. Yeah. I think uh, earlier today on text, I said that I, I found the film after a second viewing just as, as self-indulgent and egotistical. Um, now, you know, seven hours later, I, I'm, I'm rethinking that actually. I'm having a deeper appreciation for this film as, as it's emerging through our discussion 
right now. And I think that one of the things that Wells does really, really brilliantly in this film are certain key scenes. Uh, and as, as, and I think let's take one scene, for example, that seven minute, I think it's seven minute, um, the lovemaking scene in the car, which if, if you take out the sort of, you know, eroticism of it, which is Oya Kodar's idea, she's to her own um, admission says she's the one who brought eroticism into the films of Orson Welles. Look at the films, them, I mean, look at the way he shoots it himself. I thought it was wonderfully shot. The, the, the way that the lights are pulsating and the sound of the, of the windshield wipers. Uh, and the fact that he did that with people holding garden holes uh, over, the, uh, over the car to simulate rain and really on a, on a, on a, a student budget, I think it's an extraordinary scene uh, for that. And I really, really, it's, it's for me very powerful. The most powerful scene for me is the one in, it's, again, it's, it's the orgy scene in the bathroom. Um, when she's in the club and then she goes into the bathroom. I find that whole sequence to be really, really masterful in terms of technique. But I had to put my, my conception of what a story is to the side and really just allow Wells to take me on that journey of, of compartmentalizing rather than looking at it in, uh, sequentially, I suppose. Does a film have to be a story? I don't think it does. I think that, I, I think that we've, we've been taught to, to look at films based on novels. We read from the beginning to the end. And I think what Wells was trying to do was, was to, to, to give us a story, but to show us also that the story is what we're seeing. If we really pay attention to this film, there's a lot of, uh, he does a lot with the metaphor of seeing, of eyes, the eye of the camera, all the way to when she cuts the doll's eyes out and she puts them as earrings uh, and the eyeball on her ring. There's something about, about always looking through a viewfinder. And it goes back to what Wells said about this film. This is a mask for him, that he could never have made that, that film within the film, Jake Hannaford's film. He would never have made that film. So it's Jake Hannaford's film, not Orson Welles' film. That's like, that's the title, right? The Other Side of the Wind, meaning right. the other side of the camera. Right, right. So I think we have to come to this film differently uh, and put our expectations aside and look at it for what it is. And, he, you know, again, I go back to, this is a film that's created in the editing room. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that Wells had as much to do with the editing of this cut than, than, we, may, than we may know. I think it was maybe the outside editor. So um, I, I don't know. This I'd, love to see, I'd love to see a breakdown of the parts that he edited versus the parts that were edited. Um, the, uh, the article I, I keep referencing, the New Yorker article, has some interesting conversations about all of the directors that looked at this and helped with the editing. And they, they mentioned the scene you mentioned, is the, the two scenes you mentioned particularly for, their, for the skill and the technical aspects of it and a few others too. You might, again, I'll, I'll send that to you, but um, um, I lost the thread of what I was saying. No, I, I, think, I think the cinematography alone is, it makes the film meritorious. You know, I, I think that just visually it's just, uh, it's stunning. And even the, even the footage that's from the cameras of, you know, supposedly the cameras of the, the revelers and the- Yeah, you know, the documentary makers, yeah. Just, just people at the party. I think it's just, um, just visually interesting to look at. And, and here's a crazy question for you. Does a fi that I mentioned, I asked earlier, does a film have to have a story? Does a film even have to be entertaining? <laughs> I've been to plenty that aren't. Uh, you mentioned the prequels to Star Wars. Uh, yeah, <laughs> none, none of those entertain me at all. Do you like I know what you films? mean. I know. I'm being silly. Uh, you like any films that aren't necessarily entertaining? Here's an example. Okay, so 
I am probably more entertained watching, let's say, Raiders of the Lost Ark than, let's say, I don't know, um, The Bicycle Thief. Yeah. If I, if I was flipping the channels, I might be more prone to stop on Raiders of the Lost Ark than, let's say, The Bicycle Thief or, I don't know, Lestrade or something like that. But in my opinion, Raiders of the Lost Ark is not a, it's not a better film than The Bicycle Thief. I don't think they can be you know, mentioned in the same breath, even though I just did. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I, I get it. You know, perhaps it, it's often been said that the, the filmmaker's first you know, um, job is to entertain or to captivate but we've, we talked about this earlier. Wells, I don't know if he was that interested in approval. Mm-hmm. Um, no more than Miles Davis was, was interested in uh, filling Madison Square Garden. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think that we have to approach this film and a lot of Wells' work just a little bit differently, different expectations. doesn't mean you have to like it. doesn't mean you have right. to think it's the greatest. I just think, um, uh, I don't know if he was... If he, if he was really trying to entertain with this, I think he probably was even, I'm, I'm just speculating here, he might have been more interested in, in outraging, you know, than he was entertaining. Just a, well, Building off that question, who did he make this film for? Uh, who, who is the audience that, he's, that, that, he, that he would want to see this film? That's a good I don't question. see it playing out in a, in a theater. I, I, this would have, I, I think it would have bombed at the time, and, it, and it, I think it would certainly bomb today. Uh, he had to have known. He had to have known that he was producing something that simply wasn't going to get a commercial. I mean, he had he had to know that. Right. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we reviewed uh, and critiqued F for Fake in a previous episode. Uh, one of Wells' disappointment with that movie is that he thought he was onto something with that. Right. He thought that he was creating a new genre that was going to be perhaps a uh, a new. Uh, method for him to produce films and, and produce them cheaply and to produce them. But, and he was actually a little bit surprised and disappointed that no one wanted to see it. I think with that film, for me, he was so far ahead of his time that people at the time didn't get it. I don't think we get to something like um, uh, I even Curb Your Enthusiasm today without something like F for Fake. Certainly Spinal Tap would never have happened without F for Fake. Yeah, that kind of mockumentary is is something that that Wells invented, and yeah. he did it with F for Fake. He he was trying to make that essayistic film, and you can see parts of that in the other side of the wind. And so he was certainly on a roll of trying to experiment that way. And um, he halted you know, he halted production of um, I don't know if he I, it was probably due to uh, some sort of financial thing, but F for Fake was made right smack in the middle of uh, right. filming the other side of the wind, which I felt right. very interesting. I thought there was a lot of similarities in the films in a lot of ways. Um, do you guys want to entertain a hypothetical here for a second? Let's do it. Um, so let's say you go see, to see The Other Side of the Wind, but you don't know it's an Orson Welles film. You don't know who Oya Kodar is, and you just watch this film. Do you see it as a great film or the film of a master, or do you see it as what the actual heck did I just watch? Does does Wells's name lend a cachet to this film that it wouldn't normally have? Could I could I come back with another question? Sure. <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw yesterday. Uh, yes, the the, the film. Yeah, about, that was a, I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. The um, the young man who 
wakes up one day to discover that the Beatles never existed. Oh, right. No, no one knows who the Beatles are except him. And we later learn a couple other people. But anyhow, um, he starts playing the song yesterday on his acoustic and instantly the people who hear it are just mesmerized by how incredible a tune that is. And, and so I guess the question I'm going to ask is if, um, would, would the work of the Beatles be hailed and cr critically acclaimed and um, doted over if uh, no one knew it was the Beatles, if it, if it was released today? Does authorship, does authorship play a major role? I guess that's kind of, kind of what you're asking, Walt, in a way, right? Well, no, because technically, like, Yesterday is a ear-friendly song. It's, it's not an experimental song. It's a beautiful, lovely song. Um, but let's say the first song he played to his friends was Revolution Number no. 9 or A Day in the Life, <laughs> something that's a little less user-friendly. Well, yeah. Okay, but, uh, you know, so what I'm saying is, I mean, if you, know, if you show Citizen Kane to anybody, or chimes at midnight, or or you know, and they're going to say, "Wow, you know, this is this is a brilliant film." But you show this to somebody right off the bat, I, I don't know if they're going to get that same reaction to it because right. it's so off the beaten path. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering if his name doesn't lend the legitimacy to it; it might not otherwise have. I think almost certainly it does, and you see this with any established artist, uh, if I can use that term in its broadest sense. I think you, you gain a reputation and you, you have your name attached to something and people will pay attention. They may criticize it even more harshly, but they're still going to pay attention to it. Um, to me, at least at the first viewing, I would have said this is a bad student film. You know, somebody from NYU trying to be more clever than they probably should be uh, and, and should pay attention to, to something else. But, you know, with Wells adding his name to this, I, I, I do think that there's... There's something to your question, Walt. But I also think that there's something to the fact that such a mythology has built up around this film for 40 years that, you know, perhaps it was impossible to reach the heights to, to what we have built up in our mind after, after 40 years. Certainly nothing can live up to, to Citizen Kane. And, and this was Wells' curse, that he made such a great film as his first film and, and everything else was... was pale in comparison, except for, uh, I think, Chimes at Midnight, which, yeah. which comes very close to being uh, Kane-like. You know what strikes me with this film, first of all, if anybody of our listeners haven't seen this, watch it more than once, for sure. Um, but despite the fact that my reaction to it has been fairly negative, I can't stop thinking about it. I can't mm -hmm. stop hashing it over in my mind. So maybe there's, there's the thing that I'm missing in my opinion of the film, yeah, it, you know. this, this is something you said the next day too, Walt. I remember distinctly you said you didn't like the film at all. You were quite vocal about that. But then you said almost those exact words, I can't stop thinking about it. All night I thought about this film. Maybe that's the mark of a great film. And this goes back to, to your comment, Bill. Maybe we don't have to necessarily like it. But if it gives us, you know, if, if we're still talking about it a year later and we don't know what to make <laughs> about it, but we, it, we can't get it out of our heads, yeah. maybe that's, that's the mark of a great film. In that case, I would change my opinion and say, even though I haven't made my peace with this film, yeah. I can't deny its impact on me. Sure, sure. So uh, To get back to your other question, Walt, about how would you feel about it if you didn't know Wells uh, made this? And, you know, I'd like to think, when I, when I watch it, when I see it now, even for the second time, I, I'm astonished by the editing. 
And I, I would, I really have to insist that only a master editor, a master filmmaker could create something like this. Uh, it may not be entertaining to many people. It may not necessarily, I just think technically, on a technical level, it's, it's, it's not easy to do what he did with this movie. Um, in, who knows, you might even want to label it just an exercise or, or um, an editing, but I don't think this could be done by a student film, uh, filmmaker. It couldn't be done by just any, any hack. I think it took someone like Orson Welles to be bold enough to do it. Yeah. Um, a, a, lot had to, a lot had to happen for him to capture a lot of that imagery. You know, and and then you know, and to have the footage to even edit, um, I I think it's a pretty astonishing feat. And I do agree with you, Andrew. Too, I think you mentioned earlier that it's really tough to take this film out of the context of its of its history. And it's to me, it's almost like Wells's life in and of itself is kind of like a work of art. And this is just part of the part of the art. You know, a man's life can be uh, part of this artistic statement. And I just think this is part of it. This is a big part of it. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I think it's very interesting. And it's almost like happening right in front of our eyes here with, uh, with, with you know, as you were saying, well, and you mentioned this earlier, Andrew, that it's just, even now, the, the film is sort of uh, speaking to us, you know, and I don't, you know, I, I think I intend to see it again, not anytime necessarily soon, but um, I think my opinion of it, I, I'm hoping that it'll change. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of great artwork, it's just, you have to, it just, it sustains many different viewings in, in, um, in case of music, just listen. I mean, I don't know how many times did it say, for me anyhow, I didn't necessarily take to a lot of Miles Davis. I you know, keep using Miles Davis as an example, but a lot of his work to me was a, definitely an acquired taste. And yeah. uh, at first I didn't necessarily uh, understand it or I, I just, but after a while it sort of gets in your head a bit and um, you keep thinking about it. Sometimes it outrages you. And, you know, that could be the mark, as you said, of a, of a, of an, of an interesting work. Let's, let's, let's use that term. Interesting, meritorious. I, I think your, your analogy with Miles Davis is, is dead on. Uh, you know, Miles Davis took a lot of criticism when he went to jazz fusion and was trying to meld rock and roll with jazz and, and it was completely different from the kind of blue uh, era that he was working in. He was trying to push himself to the limits. And I think Wells in the same vein as an artist is trying to push himself to, to certain limits. Um, you know, again, I, I appreciate this film much more after, after a second viewing than I did that night. And I think that first night I just, I went in with, with such high expectations about what I thought the film was gonna be. Uh, and it just didn't turn out to be that. Now I appreciate it a lot more. And again, but I appreciate it in increments. I think some of those scenes that he's, that he's building are, are fantastic. And I, my question is, I'm really wondering, because it's, you know, it's released in, in 2018, you know, I, I think it, it's, it's almost as if it was released again at a poor moment because we're releasing a film about toxic masculinity in the middle of the Me Too movement. And we have to be, I think, we have to... We have to talk about that. We have to talk about the way that, that females are portrayed and the way that males are portrayed. And, and we have the young girl, Mavis, in, in this film that, that um, Jake Hannaford takes, you know, really, and is going to take her down to, to Mexico. And, you know, that made, that made me feel very uneasy when I saw it a year and a half ago. It, it did again yesterday. But would I have felt that uneasy if I saw it in the mid-70s? Uh, you know, I, I might have felt very different. 
Well, I guess the question becomes, what's, how, does Wells, how, how did Wells want us to feel about right. the toxic, toxic masculinity portrayed in this film? I think he wants us to be repulsed by it. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I don't think he's glorifying it. Um, and being repulsed by it, I think it's, uh, it's, it's what we're supposed to feel. Yeah, I agree. I think he is, is directly being critical of this type of masculinity. And, and I think that to look at it as a glorification of this, this type of masculinity is, is really seeing it completely incorrectly. Yeah. The um, Susan Strasberg character who's, you know, a stand in for Pauline Kael, I believe. Right. Uh, it, um, not, oh, I'm sorry, I got a character mixed up. Early on, uh, he's asked a question by a gentleman in the car. Is, the, you know, camera capture reality or reflected or is it a phallus? Yeah. And then later you see in his film, it, it literally, the film within a film that he's making, which he then Susan Strasberg character criticizes him for after he is, he's, he's intruding on, on these, this sex and this nudity and it captures the berating of John Dale and the fetishizing of uh, Oya's character. And it does, you see that then that he has, you know, whatever great artist he was, he's now, you know, imbuing his film with that. And I'm not sure if we're meant to, enjoy the film within a film even though it's well shot mm -hmm. or you know it, it's it's um to the end it gets almost laughable i mean in the end when the giant phallus yeah. is standing up and then deflates i i was laughing out loud but uh <laughs> you know it, it, freud would have a field day with that yeah yeah, yeah. and so I, i'm I, thinking I, you know the, i'm not sure if the film within a film is supposed to be a you know following that theme to let us you know because we don't like jake hannaford he's not nice he's not a good guy it's, it's a parody, so right? The film wasn't the film. Wouldn't we call it a parody? Or is it a, is it a send-up? I think it's a parody, but again, I don't think Wells can do, do it bad. It's like some actors, you try to ask them to act badly on purpose and they can't. That's true. Yeah. yeah I, I think, you know, he, he's obviously criticizing that, that a certain type of, of European cinema, Antonioni, you know, and, and, and all of that. Which he loathed, which he didn't like, right? Right, right. And and, and I and, and again, I don't know if he didn't like it because he was jealous of of you know that Italian new wave coming up and being and being you know so critically receptive to to what people were were needed at that particular time. And Wells, I think, felt like the odd man out, and rightly so. And we see this with Jake Hannaford as well that he's trying to be, um, you know, he's and this comes across in the film, I think obviously he's trying to get into that younger man's game to show that he's still hip he's still with it and of course at the end all he is is a sad old man true, true. Boy, that, that sounds harsh but uh that's the it's way it's a I harsh think. film yeah yeah this he's a he's a complete drunk and you know there's that one scene um that i that i really like where you know houston is drinking after mavis brings him a yet another drink and you know it's dripping out of out of his mouth as he's talking is you know he's a um he's just a bad drunk is his death a suicide that's a good question i mean if you think about it if once i mean you, my second viewing, as I was going through it, I'm asking myself, okay, even when we first start seeing Hannaford's character at the party, he almost has this, um, and, and again, Houston is such a great actor that it almost seemed like he knew what he was going to do. It's almost like he had it in his head. He almost seemed suicidal yeah. from the get-go in this film. 
I don't know if he was planning on ending that night with a suicide or, uh, but for me, I, I, I kind of think that it's something that he was contemplating very seriously. I think there are all kinds of suicides and certainly with Jake Hannaford, it, it ties in wonderfully with his reckless behavior, uh, you know, to everything from, from over drinking to the point of obscurity, he drinks himself into this haze to taking out the gun and, 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 and shooting at the, uh, the, 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 <laughs> the dummies, Dale, uh, dummies and, and then just getting in the car and driving everywhere uh, after being that drunk. There is this kind of recklessness where, you know, I am so macho and larger than life that I can't, I can't be killed. You know, it's almost, it, it's, it's Greek on that sense. He, he died on his own, died in his own terms. On his own terms. Yeah. Um, and I think perhaps if he, uh, if he got that money, yeah, maybe he, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Um, probably wouldn't have happened, but that was, that was it. No, I don't no. know. I, I seem to think that the whole film is the film he's creating is, is a suicide note in a sense. Um, and, you know, cause we never see, him in his greatness. We never see why so many people hang on his every word. We never see the, a, a, a reel of film that he shot that was good. We see this this film within a film that no one wants to back. He knows they're not backing it. He knows it's out there. He doesn't even go to his own screening. And, and I think that the whole, we, we're just seeing him from that, it's the down, the last spiral, the, the lowest uh, rung before he, he dies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does anybody come off really well in this film? Is there anybody that we sympathize with? Everybody to me seems kind of sketchy. John Dale, maybe? Not the character in the character, but the actor playing the actor. him. Yeah. Who has the, he, he's had it, he's walked away. Yeah. Right. No. Although maybe he's a metaphor. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that Norman Foster's character, uh, Billy Boyle, comes off, I mean, as flawed as he is, which, whose performance I thought was magnificent, by the way. He's really, really terrific in this film. Um, he, to me, he comes off very sympathetic. He, he's, he's set up for failure by Jake. Yeah. For everything from being sent to the studio to deal with the, the studio head to, you know, uh, succumbing to a drink, uh, you know, towards the end of the film. Uh, I really felt for that particular character. And I also felt for, you know, for, for Joe McBride's character, uh, Pister, as the, as the young kind of person writing the book and, and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Do you think this film would have been better if it was, if the story was told not through the, the lenses of, what's it, whatever, 20 different cameras, yeah. or if it was just a traditional narrative? I, I think it would have been a very different film as yeah. a traditional narrative. Uh, I, I think that, that the, the prime mover of this film is to tell it from all those different points of view. And it's interesting, Wells has always been very structured, you know, going back to that, you know, um, every frame of Kane seems to have been planned. Uh, you know, once you get into his more independent years, things were done sort of on the fly. And, yeah. But there was still always a, a Baroque quality to a lot of his, a lot of his films, but this... Again, it is the illusion. Maybe it is an illusion of no structure. Yeah. Um, but I, I, again, I'm going to go back to my idea. I think the more we watch this, I think the more planned we're going to, uh, the more structure we might we might see um, after a few viewings. That's just my prediction. Who knows? Uh, can we change gears a little bit and just mention the soundtrack? I'm I'm curious to 
just hear what you guys have to think about uh, Michel Legrand's uh, soundtrack to this. Of course, Legrand worked with him in, in F for Fake and then was brought back, you know, two years ago um, to finish the music on this film. Do, do you have any impressions about, about the soundtrack? I honestly, I just, I remember, um, I remember sort of zeroing in on it a few times, but I, I, that's one of the things I would like to sort of re-examine once yeah. I, I watch it again, because I, I didn't, which means I not distracting to me. <laughs> I, I, there's some moments where I found it pretty compelling and, um, it definitely heightened the drama a bit, but I, I, I have to, I have to come back to you on that one. I, I think I'd like to pay more attention. What about you, Walt? Did you? No, I'm I'm with you on that, but I I remember parts of it. You know, when the filming seemed to be uh, very disjointed, so too was the the notes. It was very jangly, and it just added, I think, to my anxiety, which you know perhaps it was. Um, so that, that's all I can say on it at this point. But I I would like to think that if the three of us ever are physically able to get together again, we should watch this film together again. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I remember the source music um, specifically in the bathroom scene where you have the period rock music. I'm curious, right. you know, where that music came from, who, uh, who provided the, whatever the, the rock, you know, early seventies rock. Yeah, I know. It, it almost sounded like Jefferson airplane or, or uh, one time like early. Yes. You know, it was, it was that kind of acid rock that, that was playing at the time. Yeah. Um, to answer my own question, I thought Legrand's uh, soundtrack was fantastic. Uh, the jazz pieces for me were actually one of the highlights of the film. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, so much so that uh, I was watching it and my wife was, was sitting next to me. She's, she was reading a book, but she looked up and said, I really like this music. What are you watching? And, you know, so it, for her, she wasn't watching the film, but she caught up on the music. And and I thought I thought the music was fantastic. She didn't once she didn't once ask you what in the hell are you watching? No, she did not. No, uh, she knew, I, you know I'm gonna. She knew I was watching an Orson Welles film, but at this point she doesn't she doesn't ask me which one. Kudos to you for picking up on the music. I felt so visually assaulted uh, by the <laughs> constant shifting focus. I couldn't. I couldn't focus on it. So next, now I have something to look forward to the next time I, I watch think, it. Yeah, I think the music and the the soundtrack has not been released. Um, and of course, the film has not been released by on DVD yet, or uh, hopefully that's coming. Um, but I do think the soundtrack warrants a, a, a digital release of, of some sort. I think the music is really fantastic. Yeah, there are there are hundreds of hours of yeah of, of footage here, and you know, I wonder if any of it's going to be released as uh, bonus features, bonus footage. Um, who knows? But. Uh, where, where do you think this this film falls in in the in the Orson Welles oeuvre? <laughs> a lot of people. I mean, honestly, I don't know how deeply you guys have gotten into critical analysis of this film, but uh, there are there are critics out there that put this way yeah. up there. Uh, Joseph McBride, yeah, puts it up there with Kane. I mean, he's very enthusiastic about this. I think. Rotten Tomatoes has it rated pretty, uh, very high for a, an experimental film. Yep. I don't know if it's in the 80s or 70s. It's pretty, it's pretty up there. Um, personally, I like, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if I like ranking things, but I, I put it in the uh, top five. Really? Top five of his, you know. Uh, you know, it's um, maybe kind of where F or fake might be in the, in the ranking, mm -hmm. 
definitely an experiment. And I'm curious as to what it's going to do, you know, as I watch it more. And um, certain Wells films for me have, uh, have become more interesting, more compelling to me after, very, you know, several viewings. One film I want to see of his, I have, I have not seen it in a long, long time, and I'm curious how, it, how I view it now. And that's uh, Arkadin, Mr. Arkadin. Um, that's, that's another experiment of his. And, yeah. you know, how many different versions of, their, of that film, how many different edits? There are at least three, I think. So, you know, it's interesting that, that we're talking about the, how this film warrants so many. You have to see it again and again and again. And I, I felt the same way about the trial. When I first saw it, I didn't like it at all. Uh, and after three or four viewings, I, I come to think of it as a masterpiece, uh, yet another Orson Welles masterpiece. So I wonder if I'll feel the same way about this film after I watch it a few more times. Yeah, I guess you could always reserve that. You know, we all, we all have the right to reserve our mind, yeah. and reserve our uh, final judgments when it comes to these films. So um, maybe we'll have to do another podcast down the road. <laughs> our annual, our annual uh, Other Side of the Wind podcast. The other side of the other side of the wind. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, this is uh, this has been great. You know, is, is any other questions you want to throw out there? Do you think we've uh, we've kind of covered it? We, we've covered a lot of ground, which is kind of interesting. We we went off in a lot of tangents tonight, but I think this is the kind of film that lends itself to that that it, that, it, that it takes us into strange territory at times. That. But in the end, I think you, you come around to, to what Wells is trying to do with this film and, and to show us another way of, of looking at film and what film can actually do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, it seems like Wells has not sabotaged this particular episode. We're still recording. <laughs> so hopefully when I hit a stop, it will actually save. So um, folks, if you're hearing this, it means uh, we've successfully completed the uh take two of the other side of the wind podcast. So uh, thanks guys. It's been a, a lot of fun. Great. Thank and, you. Uh, we, uh, we hope that everyone here gets a chance to see this movie and, and comment on it. It's on Netflix streaming. And uh, if you do have uh, some time to see this in its entirety, I do believe in maybe you guys could uh, back me up on this. I think it's a film you need to watch this in, in one sitting. It's not something that you could necessarily pause and come back to it the next day. I, I don't, I think it has a very different effect. I think you're um, right. Yeah, so I think uh, I think um, I just I'm curious if any film if any film you know warrants some uh, discussion from our our listeners I'd love to hear uh, we'd all love to hear what you have to say about the film and we get a discussion going so please check us out on uh, iTunes and rate us and uh, check out our YouTube channel and uh, get in on on a discussion and let us know what you think so uh, for Andrew Martino and. Well, Freeman, this has been a, another episode of The Classroom Critics, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thank you.